Miguel, you are the best foreman I've ever had on this farm. My name is Arthur, and you're down to one tobacco plant, Mrs. Wolf. What are you talking about, Juan? We've got hundreds of acres stretching out to the horizon right over there. You're pointing to the Rolling Turtle Corporate Park. You sold most of your land to them years ago. You keep forgetting. Pablo, maybe I haven't been as involved in the farm as I should have been. Not lately, but that's going to change starting today. How many thousand plants did you say we have now? Just this one plant, Mrs. Wolf. Seven feet tall if it's an inch. Still, my late husband would be ashamed of what's happened here. He's alive, Mrs. Wolf. He lives in Boca Raton. Well, you're kind of a little know-it-all, aren't you, Carlos? Tell those pickers to gather around. I want to tell them about my plans for the future. Those people work for Eastern Joint Replacement in the medical office where your other fields used to be. You really know how to trample down an old woman's memories. You're 37. But you know what, Raphael? The story of Connecticut shade tobacco keeps growing. Maybe there aren't as many fields or barns, but the stories are still alive, and a few hardy souls keep the old way of life going. And that's what today's show is about. And now he sold all his farmland to support his Hummel figurine addiction, Colin McEnroe. It's a big mistake, and I regret it now, but they're just so cute, I couldn't help myself. So this is a really interesting topic. We're going to be talking about shade tobacco, this incredible heritage, this story uh, of, uh, the, uh, of shade tobacco growing in the Connecticut River Valley. And uh, it's a story uh, about a plant. It's a story about a national habit. It's a story about labor, too, a story about uh, groups of workers who came here. Uh, you're going to be amazed uh, when one of our guests uh, tells you uh, some of the names of people who have picked tobacco here, and we probably don't have them all. Uh, we uh, are going to tell you about the sheds, too, the tobacco sheds, which are rapidly disappearing, but they're still around. And as the introduction suggested, we're also going to talk about the fact that, uh, well, for example, I think in 1950, there were 19,000 uh, acres uh, of shade tobacco uh, under cultivation here in Connecticut. And, um, uh, well, we'll find out how much there is now. I don't think there's a thousand, but we'll, we'll find out. Anyway, it's a great story. I'm also thinking, and I had this experience on Facebook earlier this week, that um, a lot, there's a lot of people around who still work tobacco, who have worked tobacco, who when they were 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, uh, worked tobacco here in Connecticut, including Jim Chapdelaine uh, from The Nose, one of our own uh, stalwarts here. So I'm guessing some of you may have stories to tell. Uh, 860-275-7266 if you want to call in. 860-275-7266. In just a minute, you're going to meet by phone uh, Dale Cahill, a farmer and the co-author with his wife, What's this with his wife, Dale? That can't be right. Uh, uh, tobacco Sheds, Vanishing Treasures in the Connecticut River Valley here. I've actually got the book here. It's Dale and Darcy Cahill. All right. So, and Brianna Dunlap uh, is here in studio with me. She's the director of the Letty Taylor Connecticut Valley Tobacco Museum uh, and a master's student at CCSU in public history. Connie Robinson works full-time for YHBIA Investments, administering their charitable endowments, teaches a course on gravestones and cemeteries, but significantly, uh, she's one of the people who has stories about coming here to work in the tobacco industry. So does Tom. Tom Brown, the founder of Diversity Leadership Forum in New Haven, uh, worked at tobacco fields in, in Simsbury. And uh, one of those last hardy farmers that we talked about here, Steve Jarmuck, uh, is here. He's the third generation of to family tobacco farmers uh, on Jarmuck Farm in Enfield. Uh, we got all those things and you too. Um, and so uh, uh, Betsy or Wolfie or who is ever on the board right now, do we have the, the movie clip? Uh, is, that, can you, is that ready to fire off here? Because uh, I thought we would just uh, begin by just showing you how glamorous Steve Jarmuck's life as a tobacco farmer really is. From under these endless miles of white cloth come the incredible fortunes of Connecticut tobacco and a fabulous story. 
As a novel, this story fascinated millions in many languages with the hyped-up, big-money pace of the people who make a modern tobacco empire. Now, it's an exciting new motion picture. Um, so that's pretty much it, right, Steve? I mean, it's the hyped-up, big-money pace <laughs> of tobacco, uh, shade tobacco in Connecticut. Uh, that's pretty much it, uh, but it's uh, it sounds a little more glamorous from that TV show than it is on the farm. It's uh, actually it's actually the movie Parish. Have you ever seen this movie? I've seen bits and pieces of it. It's a horrible movie, but <laughs> you should watch it anyway because it's I mean it's great sort of just in a very kind of campy kitschy way. It's it's uh, and it's it's ba- it's for really from the 1950s. You know, at the at the peak of, or maybe right around 1960, from the real peak of the growing, Carl Malden is uh, this ruthless tobacco baron whose office appears to be in Bushnell Park because he keeps. You can look out of his window and you can see the back of the state capitol. But anyway, so is it really that glamorous? Well, I'd say uh, is glamorous. Uh, farmers, you have to love your work. So yeah. uh, uh, in that respect, it is glamorous. Uh, I love being on the farm every day um, and seeing the progress, whether it be from planting to you know. Full, fully matured tobacco uh, to the harvest. And, um, you know, I said 19,000 acres in, uh, in the 1950s. Uh, do you have any idea how much cultivation there still is uh, here in Connecticut? Well, there's, I would say there's probably in the range of 750 acres of shade tobacco grown in the region and probably around 2,000 acres of broadleaf tobacco mm-hmm. grown. And, and so um, shade tobacco is the thing that we're kind of known for in a way. It's, it's a unique story, uh, the Connecticut River Valley. Not just Connecticut, but as you'll hear, particularly as we, we talk about the book, uh, all the way up uh, through, uh, through Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, but the, if, you, if you did a scatter diagram of shade tobacco at its peak, it would sort of look like a boot. You know, It would kind of widen as it came down into Connecticut and kind of hook left a little bit towards the west, towards places like Simsbury. Um, and so explain, what, what is shade tobacco, Steve? Explain what this is. Well, shade tobacco, uh, uh, it's a plant that they want thinner, more fine leaves. And so that's what the white covering or cloth is uh, above the field. Uh, you put it up on a trellis, uh, and that, that uh, diminishes the light intensity about 11%. Uh, so those leaves are finer, thinner, uh, and not real dark in color. And so, um, Bree, we should talk a little bit about the history of tobacco here in the U.S. Uh, obviously, it goes all the way back to the early plantings uh, in Virginia. Uh, so, I mean, we think about tobacco anyway as being uh, pretty much in synchronicity. Well, not synchronicity, but uh, Connecticut uh, tobacco, excuse me, tobacco in general being sort of part of the American story. But that tobacco really for, you know, much of the early history of America was grown for use in pipes or snuff or, or things like that, right? Absolutely. It was not the same type of tobacco that is cultivated in Connecticut today. Um, I mean, just to go back a little bit, I mean, big famous names would be John Rolfe, husband to Pocahontas, and he was really the first colonist to cultivate tobacco. And um, it moved quickly up into Connecticut. And um, I just want to say that Windsor was the first town founded in Connecticut in 1633. And I bring that up because you have to know that by 1640, just seven years later, there was tobacco being cultivated for personal use and for profit and being shipped back, you know, to the motherland. And that's really incredible. It just it moves so swiftly. There was such a high demand for it, and it really rooted itself in the history and the foundation of this nation, the future nation. But that was broadleaf tobacco. And uh, Connecticut also has a weird um, distinction in the, in the story of cigars. It's probable that Israel Putnam, uh, a military man from both the French and Indian Wars and the Revolution, uh, came back from the Battle of Havana. 
uh, with uh, supposedly three donkey loads. I don't know how he got the donkeys across the ocean, but uh, three donkey loads uh, of cigars and, and introduced cigars not only to Connecticut but to what would become the USA. Um, but uh, it, it really uh, – the shade tobacco story, I think, for Connecticut begins sort of towards the end of the 19th century. So you've got Sumatra is really the, the world capital. Uh, of cigar wrappers, they they grow a leaf, this wrapper leaf that is highly prized. Its um, its its flavor is mild, its color is light, it serves everything that everybody wants. But it's incredibly expensive. It's expensive here in this country because of the duty that has to be paid, and also just because they can charge a lot of money for it because it's so desirable and it's not grown anywhere else. And the USDA, mm-hmm. I think, got interested in this kind of sandyish soil uh, right. along the Connecticut River. I'll let you pick up the story. Yeah, absolutely. So it was like around uh, 1875, uh, the Havana. Seed is introduced, and then in the late 1890s, it's when Sumatra is really the competition, as you said. And so scientists and farmers really worked together to develop a hybrid that would beat out the competition. It was not an accidental leaf. Shade tobacco was not, it's not a native plant. It's a variety of Cuban and Sumatran hybrids. And then in 1900, this concept of a tent was put up. And the tent isn't quite like, you know, you would imagine a camping tent. It's a tent made out of cheesecloth, and it would be strewn across acres and acres to keep heat in, keep humidity in, and uh, sort of recreate a cloudy, tropical environment. And the sandy soil is a nice sandy loam that's left over from Lake Hitchcock. That was an ancient glacier lake that created this beautiful valley. All the conditions really funnel down to this perfect, uh, perfect environment for farmers to explode economically. Uh, it's, a, it's a perfect environment unless you have to pick it. Uh, and, uh, Tom, it's not anything like a tent you'd go camping in, right? I mean, this is a, a pretty tough way uh, to make a dollar. You better believe it. I came here uh, from Georgia, sent by Morehouse College, mm. and there were about 125 of us back during the 50s. And I came here in 19... 19- 53. And I want you to know that at that time, I was five, e, five, five feet eight inches tall. Worked here two months and I went home. I was 5'10". Mm-hmm. All I did was to work, sleep, and eat, and of course grow. This is very hard work. And one of the reasons I stuck it out was because I had a challenge said that you would not make it, that you would come home. And if it was almost like the uh, the Roman, mm-hmm. I was either going to come home on my shield or with it. <laughs> so I came home with my shield, and I had grown another two inches tall. Although your posture probably gotten a whole lot worse, and maybe we can talk about that as we go along here too. Although as long as you're on the Morehouse story, Tom, it's amazing the this pipeline from Morehouse to Connecticut, and I think maybe especially to the Simsbury Farms, I mean, some incredible, apart from yourself, some incredible luminaries. I mean, some amazing names. Say some of the people who came up here. Right. Martin Luther King was here, and many of you who have read Martin's history will know that he had his first uh, exposure to true integration, and he carried that with him for a long time. Another person who came here with me during the time, and that was Maynard Jackson, who went on to become the mayor of uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And there were a number of senators, judges, and preachers 
who were here during that time. I think Thurgood Marshall, maybe? Ar- I am not sure that Thurgood, Thurgood came. Uh, and Ar- Arthur Ashe was another name that I yes. read. I don't know how accurate that is. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Did, so did you, get, you, did you get to know Maynard Jackson out there in the field? Yes, Maynard and I were there mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, Maynard worked as hard as he possibly could. Now, one, of you, one thing that you probably should know is that most of the students who came here came here in order to earn the money to pay their way through school. Mm. But many of them came because they needed the exposure to hard work and what labor was like. Mm. And I think Maynard and Martin Luther King was that kind of visit here. Let me ask you, who could pick more bents, you or Maynard? Well, <laughs> the late Maynard Jackson, I'm going to give him credit. Right. He may have been able to bring more. You're being, you're being a, a gentleman. <laughs> Steve, maybe you should explain what a bent is. It's one of the ways in which uh, tobacco growing and picking is measured, right? Uh, correct. Uh, under the tent, uh, under the tent, it's all, uh, there's poles, and a bent is a 33 feet square, 33 by 33. Uh, you pick that row uh, and then come back and pick the row next to it. Uh, and you're measured because uh, all that all the picking was done on piecework. Uh, so uh, you're measured by how many bents you pick uh, in a day. And and there were my understanding is that there were these uh, bosses too who had come up through the picking rotation and and had these legendary outputs. Right? They challenged their workers that, who could see, uh, on a given day who, who could pick more bents. Uh, that is that's very true. Uh, and some people, I mean, they would just fly through there. Their hands, uh, you couldn't even see them move. They're going so quickly. Um, now uh, it's a little. We actually will try to pick a little bit slower, just so yeah, okay. We don't want to damage any leaves because mm-hmm. okay, each leaf is so expensive uh, by the time you get it there, uh, ready for harvest. Uh, so we try to slow it down a little bit. Um, we do a few other different things also where we pull the leaves out of the, the rows on a, a mylar cloth rather than uh, in, the, in years past you used to drag a basket through the rows and that basket would hit other leaves and maybe break them or, or you know, make little bruise marks. Uh, and there would be a, a dragger that would drag that basket and a picker. They'd go in pairs. Well, now there's two pickers and we have a, a sheet, a mylar sheet that goes down the whole row. You fill that up. And then you come out uh, and drag that out. Uh, one guy is pulling it out and rolling it, while the other guy is taking the leaves off and putting them in the baskets at the end of the row, outside the, outside the tent. All right, so uh, we're going to talk more as we go along here about this finicky uh, plant uh, that, uh, that needs such incredible care. But some of the care that it needs, as you've heard from Bree and from others, is it needs this special kind of shade. So let's talk about uh, the people who helped provide the special kind of shade. Uh, this is also the nature of the shade, as Steve will tell you in just a second, is, has changed over the years. But, Connie, you were a, a, a sower. Um, it keeps coming up on my screen as a sewer, and I keep thinking she's <laughs> she's not a sewer. Uh, she was a, you were a sewer, and uh, and what's, what you were called a Pensy girl because you're well, ben, a Pennsylvania. Yes, connection? actually, uh, Hathaway Steen Corporation uh, went out to Western Pennsylvania, and they recruited um, young women to to travel to Connecticut to work the fields. And uh, it was uh, Western Pennsylvania would be towns like Elwood City, Pennsylvania, Ambridge, Aliquippa. These are all steel mill towns uh, with very few opportunities for women to to earn any money. So when they came out, we looked at it as a great opportunity. They were going to provide room, board, and a paycheck. And um, I I will say it was my first time out of Pennsylvania. 
and I wasn't really sure what to expect. Um, but I, I had my sister with me, which was helpful. Mm-hmm. And um, we picked up girls along the way. And then we traversed, you know, Pennsylvania to here to Connecticut. And that was a long trip. I mean, it's about 500 miles away. And we knew that once we got there, there was no going home. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you were there for the summertime. Um, but Hathaway Steam provided us with um, housing that was, that was fine, adequate. There were, I remember this, my sister concurred. I called her and she said there's 14 girls in a, in a cabin and one shower. And um, that doesn't work very well, but uh, we we managed. Uh, but once we worked, um, we would we get up at seven thirty, leave, come back at four thirty, and then there'd be these calls. First in the shower, second in the shower, because <laughs> it was like, got to get into the shower. But as a sewer, going back to that, um, you s- stood at a table, and the tobacco leaves were brought to you with the stems facing each other, and then you stood on one side and alternated with a lath that came across and you put up the leaves and then your person across from you alternated and she put up the leaves. So you're constantly putting your hands together and reaching and mm-hmm. reaching. And then the lath, when it was finished, was taken by um, another worker who climbed up into the barn and then would dry, and the leaves would dry. But that's what you did basically all day long. And what I do remember is that um, I had um, the juices from the tobacco they would spill onto your pants. You remember that? Of course, of course. <laughs> they would spill onto your pants, and um, it's not not very pleasant. And then at the end of the day, you just said, "Got to get another pair of pants." And so mm-hmm. you had two pairs of pants that you rotated, and that was it. Um, but it was um, it was quite an experience. Um, we should, we should say that, uh, although our name is Connie, there's no basis for the rumor that the Connie Stevens part in the <laughs> parish is, Thank is, you. is based on Connie. Uh, um, and Steve, uh, to her point, uh, this was kind of an interesting situation. Uh, you always had uh, these uh, beautiful young women coming up to work there and, and strapping uh, young men coming to work in the tobacco fields. And, and an effort was made anyway to keep them uh, pretty segregated from one another. How'd that work? Well, that was that was actually a little before my time, yeah. so I can't say that much about how they would keep that segregation uh, uh, with the male and female workers uh, uh, working. But I'm sure it worked pretty well for a long time. Uh, they, I think, uh, uh, they had Pennsylvania girls, I think West Virginia girls, some Florida girls, uh, and then gentlemen also. So uh, it had to work well. Uh, I think Connie actually can tell how I, it. I, how, I can how, speak how, to yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I, Hathaway Steen, anyway, uh, really shepherded us and chaperoned us, mm-hmm. and we were quite segregated. Now, th- this may be different with other folks, but I I re- do not recall ever being able to fraternize. Re- exactly. Thank <laughs> you very much. Uh, but on Friday nights, um, Hathaway Steen, true to their promise, they would take us to Springfield, and we would go to their friendlies there and have, like, our big night out was, <laughs> was friendlies <laughs> in Springfield. Um, and then at the end of the season, they took us to Ocean Ocean Beach. Ah. Ocean, and that was, for most of us, our very first experience actually seeing the ocean. So it was, um, it was for us, uh, a, a, r- a rare opportunity. Tom, what, do you have any memories of, I mean, at the end of these exhausting days, was there any opportunity for fun? I don't know whether you got to go to Friendlies or the ocean or any of those places. <laughs> Very little. <laughs> because by the time you finished, Mm. You were so tired Mm. that all you wanted to do was to eat, 
sleep. But we also found time to play basketball in the back there. Mm. And it was one of those basketball courts that was filled with rocks. (laughs) And you never learned how to drip, but you always learned how to charge. And these were some (laughs) wonderful basketball games. And one of the reasons that many of the kids went on to play basketball in college is that they learn how to be very aggressive there. (laughs) One of the other things that we did was the Morehouse College Glee Club, the famous Morehouse College Glee Club. There were a number of students who sang in the Morehouse College Glee Club who were there on the tobacco farm. So we had something of a quasi-off-campus glee club there. And there were days that we would go down to where the I guess that would be the patio of where the uh, Hartford Steam Boiler is right now, and we would sing overlooking the Connecticut River, which I remember was much farther west than it is now. And we would have a number of people come and uh, cheer us, and that was a big thing for us. Wow, that's a great story. All right, so let me bring in one more voice here, then we've got to grab a break, and uh, all of our guests will be with us for the whole hour. Also, people are calling in right now. Here's uh, Dale Cahill, as I said, um, author or co-author with Darcy Cahill, I'm getting it right now, of Tobacco Sheds, Vanishing Treasures in the Connecticut River Valley. Uh, Dale Cahill, welcome to this conversation. Thank you. Hi. So um, tell us about your—you obviously have fallen in love with these sheds, um, and, and these sheds— are actually fairly complicated structures in terms of the job. Everything about shade tobacco is really complicated. And so the shed itself, it may look like a very simple thing from the outside, but as you say, uh, as you point out in your book, these are kind of interesting, wonderfully interesting buildings. So tell us more about them. Well, they're, they're, they're unique in that, they, that the, the tobacco farmers in New England figured out a, a structure and a way to dry tobacco without being in Sumatra or in a Caribbean country where the sun always shines and <laughs> it only rains at night and kind of like Camelot. So um, the, the, the different venting um, techniques, and then in the early days it was braziers, but now it's propane and wrapping a barn in plastic to retain moisture. It's... Um, it's very difficult in New England conditions. So, I'm up here in Vermont now. We've had two frosts already. I'm guessing Steve still's got tobacco in some barns. Is that right, Steve? Do you? Oh, that's correct. Uh, we still have about a third of our crop uh, in the barns, uh, but uh, getting ready to come down. You know, Bree, just looking at uh, Dale's book, and there are these beautiful, beautiful structures, although I think we get very acclimated to them. And, I mean, some of these barns, whether it's down on Tryon uh, and Old Maid's Lane in Glastonbury or out near the McLean Game Refuge or at the Pick and Patch in, in Avon, I mean, I go by these things all the time. I don't even register them. I don't think about them. But these are pretty endangered. And I, it, historically, I would assume, even though I'm sure the – you know, the preservation trusts are very interested in them. I don't know how easy it is to sort of keep them around. I'm sure Dale has stuff to say about that, but Bria is sort of our historian there. Maybe you can say something about these sheds too. Well, I'm actually happy to say that the the National Register actually reached out to the Luddy Taylor Connecticut Tobacco Museum, and they they put this barn that we have at the location. It's, it's preserved now. It's on the state register, so that's lovely. Um, but it is sad to say that I do get calls fairly often from people saying, 
if they want to tear this barn down in my town, how do I stop? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll try to pass their name on to Dale and Darcy. And I said, it's really a matter of taking up with your town. They are unique. They are so unique to this valley and um, really, really a treasure. As far as preserving them, I think the biggest hope would be to repurpose them like they have been for, you know, they can become garages or studios. Um, the museum has turned it into a, uh, a recreation and a, a dedication to tobacco life. And another one on the property is actually a nature center that's really turned into a full office space. I mean, the possibilities for reusing these sheds is really endless. It's just a matter of putting uh, the time and the money into them. Uh, Dale, I, I, I'm thinking, and you even kind of reference it in the book, that some of the uh, barns, that you, some of the sheds that you photographed um, have been knocked in between the time you, uh, you you photographed them and the publication of the book. I think there were some on Route 10 yeah. that even the book you said you didn't think would be around. Yeah, l- large numbers. And actually, I think you're getting an Amazon down there that's some of the really cool uh, whitewashed barns are going to be gone right there in Windsor. Oh, another thing to be mad at Amazon yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. uh, actually, Bree has uh, something about that, too, I think. Yeah. So, um, I, I'll go ahead. Two things that I wanted to mention about what you were just saying is I think you're right, and, and this kind of somewhat goes to the preservation. You guys are very used to those barns. Um, my first exposure was to those barns was driving down Route 91 or Interstate 91 to visit Darcy when she was living in Windsor Locks, and I always equated them to what we have up here in Vermont, uh, the covered bridges. Mm-hmm. And there's many, many books about covered bridges and studies and stuff. And believe it or not, when we first started the, the, the first book we did, um, there was just nothing out there. No, nobody had really even looked at them as art or worth preserving or anything. So then the second time around, we consulted with a, a historian at UVM named Thomas Visser. One of the things he said was the very first step preservation is to recording these the locations and and whatnot and then then the second one is exactly what Bree just said is if if a if a building is not economically viable it's it's no good and so if it's not hanging tobacco in the shed you need to be parking a a mercedes or (laughs) making a museum out of it and that that is exactly how i think in the end that they will be preserved Bree, you were going to see something else when he was talking about Amazon. I drive by there fairly often, and um, it's shocking. If, you, if you're not from the Windsor area and you just go through the Day Hill and you see this monstrous, uh, no offense to Amazon, <laughs> they're always going to deliver they, my packages late now. Right. <laughs> but you see this warehouse that literally it takes up the horizon, and then you still see like a, what's left of a shed city just hanging on in front in those fields. And um, it's it's really saddening to see the history, um, you know, right next to this this modern corporation. You mm-hmm. know, there's actually an Amazon drone hovering outside our window right now. It's, <laughs> yeah, they heard uh, me. A little red dot appearing on on Bree's uh, sweater. But uh, all right, so we'll uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll see if Bree makes it through. Uh, and uh, do there are a lot of people calling in? Joe and Jim and Brenda. They want to tell their stories. So let's grab a break here. Empty bonds just falling down. Well, I am coming up through the floor. Oh, what sweet 
All right. We're talking about uh, the story of Connecticut Valley Tobacco. Uh, we got a board full of calls here. we got some great guests in the studio. Brianna Dunlap uh, is uh, the director of the Letty Taylor Connecticut Valley Tobacco Museum. Uh, Connie Robinson was one of the Pensy girls, one of the uh, young women who came up to, to, uh, to sow uh, tobacco. Uh, Steve, uh, and actually not sow in the ground, but sow with a needle and thread. Um, Steve Jarmuck is a third generation uh, of family tobacco farmers at Jarmuck Farm in Enfield. Tom Brown, uh, founder of Diversity Leadership Forum in New Haven. He worked uh, the tobacco fields in uh, Simsbury uh, as a young man. We'd love to hear from you. We, let's, we will take a few calls here. And, uh, well, let's start with, uh, uh, it's just, uh, I think the story of the women who work tobacco is maybe uh, less well known. I mean, I know a lot of guys who have tobacco stories to tell, but here's uh, Brenda from Cheshire, who, like Connie, I think did some uh, work in tobacco. Hi, Brenda. Hi. So tell us your story. Okay. I grew up in Florida, and at the age of 15, I came to Connecticut to work in the tobacco fields. And I had never been out of the state of Florida, so that was quite a trip for me. We came up by bus. Mm-hmm. And um, I also uh, I only worked one year as um, a young girl because the work was terribly, terribly hard. (laughs) And uh, I must have written a letter home uh, to my mom saying, you know, how awful it was up there. And she said, well, I'll see if I can scrape the money together and, and have you come home if you wish. Well, of course, that was the incentive I needed because no way was I going to quit and give up and go home. Um, the work, as I said, was very hard. We did all phases of the work. As we arrived, we worked at weeding, and then after that, uh, we tied the plants to um, keep them upright. And as they grew, we did the winding where you would take up the slack in, in the um, cord, and um, the final phase was the sewing, and we, as that's already been talked about. But I will have to say that um, we were lucky in that we um, were in Terrafield at a camp. We were the only ones that I understand had a swimming pool. Oh, oh. swimming pool! Oh. <laughs> oh, sheer luxury. Yeah, well, Brenda. Which, it was a spring that was on, um, on the property, but it was really great. And, of course, that was the first thing you did when you came home. You just jumped right. in the pool. You didn't so. have to wait for the shower the way Connie did. Brenda, thanks so much for the story. You know, um, uh, I want to talk with Bree about the Florida connection in just a second. But, Tom, this is something you were saying during the break, that this was kind of a red badge of courage. Mm-hmm. It was, on the one hand, sort of, a, um, as you said, almost like a grand tour for a young African-American man coming up from the South. This was the beginning of seeing the world, but it was also, uh, because it was so uh, such a ferociously difficult kind of work, something that you kind of were known for having completed. Right. It was very much like the caller had just said. Many of us came here, and the work was so hard. We had never worked this hard before. And the only way we were going to go back home is that it killed us. But we stuck it out. Uh, The other thing was we found that the environment here was quite different from that in Georgia. You have to remember that. This was back in the 50s, and things were not very good in the 50s or the years before that. 
But coming here, you got a sense of equality. And the only time that we had experienced any kind of prejudice was oftentimes when we would walk downtown Simsbury once it's raining and we couldn't go to the fields. We would walk downtown Simsbury and we would walk in groups of five to six. And the young kids would come out of their house and they would call back, Mommy, Poppy, here comes the N-word. And we, for some reason, didn't see that the kids were being mean. They were just repeating what they had heard. Because these kids were too young. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, having grown up in Connecticut in the 1950s and early 1960s, it was, I mean, in, you really could live most of your childhood here and never see an African-American person. I mean, you just, you just, just it was, uh, unlike the South in that way, that, that whites and blacks in, in Connecticut in that era were always 5, 10, 20 miles apart from one another. That's right. And when we went downtown Hartford, there was no problem going to a drugstore to get a soda or going into a bar or going into a club uh, of which many of us would, I guess they even had faked IDs during that time. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we found that this was a very accepting place here. And one of the reasons that once we made it through the first year, because of the money and because of the environment here, we would come back again. This, this is an amazing show, and it's moving so fast, and I've got like eight calls on the board and 20 stories I want to tell here in, in the room, so uh, we've got to keep moving here. And, you know, Steve, before I do run out of time, I, I want to ask you why you're still growing this plant. I mean, it really is an incredibly finicky and difficult plant. Almost anything else would be easier to grow, and easier still would be for you to sell off the land, as has been the... We should mention that, um, that, that, that a couple of things happened kind of in the late 1950s and the early big uh, 60s, one of them was suburbanization, where suddenly the land was more valuable. The land where the tobacco had been growing was more valuable. The other one was the so-called development of homogenization, which is this sort of bastardized kind of wrapper that's made of chopped up things and stuff like that. Um, and, and But you know, it was serviceable anyway. It wasn't as good uh, as a Connecticut shade wrapper, but it started to compete with it. So, I mean, just there's this incredible disappearance that we keep talking about here. But so why are you still in this business? Why don't you just, have you just sell it all off and turn it into a medical office park and break Bree's heart one more time? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a it's a labor of love. Uh, okay, you have to love farming. Uh, okay, and no matter what you're growing, whether it be you know tobacco or corn or potatoes, um, you're you're into it. Uh, and you're into it for I think the right reasons. Just because you like that job, because farming is it's not it's not a job. It, it's a, it's a life. Uh, it's with you uh, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, and at night. Um, so it's certainly a labor of love that you're doing it, um, and it, it's it's nice to see it. Um, we're going to uh, grab a quick break here, uh, and as I say, the, the time is uh, f- just fleeing right now. So we'll grab a quick break here. We've got calls. We've got tweets. We've got guests. Uh, we'll do all that when we come back.
Today's show was pro- Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are the Knights Who Say Nee, Nia Tyler and John Malaya. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Carl Malden. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff sitting in their boxer shorts smoking big old cigars, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. Oh, I want to see those pictures of the Faith Middleton Show staff sitting in boxer shorts smoking their big old cigars. <laughs> I want to mention uh, Dar- Dale and Darcy's website, too, which is uh, uh, on the World Wide Web. It's tobaccosheds.com. Uh, you can see more uh, stuff from their book. There's so much stuff that we want to cover here. And um, wow. Um, well, you know, maybe we could just talk a little bit about, uh, we were talking about it kind of off the air, too. One of the amusing things about that movie, Parish, is that pretty much all the people working on the tobacco farms, are, as Tom Brown was just saying, are white. Uh, and in fact, Bree, the story uh, of Connecticut tobacco labor is this incredible story of immigration. The first wave of it uh, is, is probably a European immigrants uh, right around the turn from the 19th, 19th to the 20th century. Uh, but then each wave of immigrants, each group of people willing to come in and do hard work, uh, uh, really, really hard work in concentrated bursts, be- becomes the next group of tobacco workers. Absolutely. So immigrants have always been crucial to Connecticut tobacco. I mean, our early records show that it was Polish-Lithuanian immigrants coming to America to have a new life, jobs, um, as we all did. So in the 1910s, when shade tobacco really kicked off, workers would be mostly urban children coming in from Hartford, from Springfield, this trucked in. Trucked in, there was no age limit. Um, And moving on through the World War II and the post-war, the Valley required large numbers of workers, so it was the Connecticut as well as the Penske girls, like you, my dear, uh, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Puerto Rico was considered local, mm-hmm. really, and um, foreign workers, the West Indians, you know, later Jamaicans, and um, there would be conflicts going through the fifties and sixties, and that was really a big time of change. So in fifty-three, the homogenized wrapper came out. That was a big blow to the industry, and. Um, I'd like to mention in 64, there was this repeal of a public law that basically kicked out Mexicans and the British West Indians from the country. There was this push to bring in, uh, to use, utilize local labor and to increase the wages across the country. So in 65, tobacco workers suffered that backlash or, you know, they put it as a suffer because now they had to really use local workers and there wasn't enough. Even though the prices were waged, you know, the wages went up 20% on the dollar, they couldn't find the work. So they would bring in Puerto Ricans. And then, you know, from there, there there's, you know, concerns with the community because people weren't the same. The workers were changing. A lot of a lot of things happening at once in the fifties and sixties. Steve, who who picks and who works on tobacco farms now? What what grew, How how do you recruit your workforce? Um, yeah, how do we recruit? Uh, it's well, somewhat local. Uh, we'll get people from uh, Hartford, Springfield. Uh, we don't we really don't have any kids uh, now. For a kid to come to work on a farm, uh, they they poo poo it. They don't want to come and work. Uh, it's hard work. Uh, okay, it's hard, dirty work. And they just, right, would rather pick up an allowance from their parents and go out and <laughs> spend their money at the mall. 
I would like to say that um, I'm pretty sure my grandmother uh, and probably my great-grandfather were tobacco. They were from Windsorville, Connecticut, which is like, right in the heart of the tobacco com- uh, country. But I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been as good as Tom or Connie. I wouldn't have lasted. I would have, I would have gone home after a week. <laughs> I'm soft. I'm weak. I admit it. Um, all right. We've got a lot of people calling in here. Tom, one thing I wanted to ask you. I, I, I put out a little thing on Facebook, and a lot of people chimed in with their stories. And, and one one thing that a number of people said was it was kind of a rough and tumble world out there uh, under those uh, under the shade, just in the sense that, or in the fields anyway, tempers would flare. Uh, one guy said he just sort of kept his head down, didn't want to get in any fistfights with people. Was it sort of a tough environment that way? Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I after the first year. Yeah. I was made foreman of my group, and. I remember having to have two or three fights in order to prove myself as a leader. And there were fights going on all the time. And not only between the the kids who were in our barracks, mm. but there were fights going on with the other immigrant groups mm. who were coming out. It was a rough and tumble time. Yeah. I think even uh, getting a promotion to work in the barn instead of being in the fields uh, would sometimes... Uh, Jim Chapdelaine, who's on this show a lot, uh, he got one of those barn jobs where, first of all, it was two guys and the rest... Uh, uh, beautiful young women like Connie working in the barn. And, and uh, so that was a pretty plum assignment. Uh, but they would sort of, his field mates would torture him by sending snakes and stuff like that into the barn. Or, <laughs> and they'd put tobacco worms in your sandwiches and stuff like that just to, in order to get revenge. Yeah, Bree, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that I uh, completely agree with you and the, the tensions between the fields. And there's one particular story that I've had uh, a, a visitor came into the tobacco museum, and he points to this water tank, and he goes, oh, there's crazy memories surrounding you know, this water tank. And I just looked at it, and I thought, well, I know it holds water, and it's put to the field. So what's your story? He goes, that would be the source of so many fights because all the different ethnicities would want to fight and get to it first. And so for me, that was really incredible to hear that an object you'd think was just such a benign thing mm. would be... The, the center for such tension. Connie, I, I want to – I get the sense, uh, listening to you and Tom, though, that this work, you know, it was unbelievably hard. You yeah. stuck it out. You made it. You didn't want to lose face uh, by going home with your tail between your legs. Plus, you had no way to get home anyway. <laughs> but right. um, I don't know. Do you feel like it made you the person you are today too? I mean, is it, was it, is it part of what shaped you into who you are? Uh, I, I think it has shaped me. I mean, I think any job you do does shape you in one way or the other. Um, it was just such hard work. Um, but you felt like I did it, you know, and, and if I did this, I can do other things. Um, hopefully not as physically difficult in the future, but it did allow me to say, look at a challenge and say, I can do it. Um, let me grab uh, a call from Stephen in West Hartford. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. You're on the air. Uh, so I grew up in Windsor, and I worked the tobacco fields for two summers as a teenager in the mid-'90s. Um, it was an extremely long and difficult job. Um, I was up before the sun every morning, uh, riding my bike to the farm and I worked all morning and all afternoon, carefully picking the leaves, making sure not to damage any of them, putting them on that little tarp. Um, and the thing I remember most was these monstrous green tobacco worms. They were nasty. (laughs) And um, but difficult, difficult as it was, um, I tend to look back on it very romantically. Um, <laughs> I think that's because uh, I feel that it really built my character to work the land. Um, most people don't have that experience anymore. 
but my biggest memory, I'd have to say, was coming home at the end of the day and spending about 45 minutes every afternoon showering yeah. <laughs> and scrubbing my fingernails to the, get the tar from right. the leaves The off lava of soap. I, hear, I heard a lot about lava soap, uh, oh, just trying to get that stuff out of you. so disgusting. You, you know, Steve, um, one thing that I've also sort of encountered, I'm sure Tom and, and Connie would uh, uh, confirm this, especially Tom, is that um, in that area between the cover and the field, there's, you start really early in the morning, right? The pickers start very early in the, early in the morning. So in some farms, I think it was, was, you know, really when the sun came up uh, or thereabouts. And, and then it was sort of cold then. It's cold, and it, gets, it finally gets warmer, and there's like one hour of the day where it's kind of comfortable, and then it starts to get really hot. Yeah. And it's always wet. Yeah. The dew yeah. on the tobacco, by the time you get there at 7.30 in the morning, you start working, mm-hmm. you are soaking wet at 8 o'clock. And it's cold. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Steve. And then, right, it's cold, and then it gets warmer, and you're soaking wet, and it's humid, and it's sticky, and you're under the nets, and there's no air. Uh, so, yeah, it's, there's all, you meet all the conditions uh, in one day, from hot to cold to wet uh, to sticky. Yeah, so uh, people said that sort of from 1030 to 1130, it would be kind of nice, and then after that, it would be hot. Um, so, Dale Cahill, I'm kind of wondering, you know, if, if uh, as you looked at these sheds that you uh, love so much and that are so beautiful and so interesting, um, do you see any um, uh, any possible future? I mean, we talked about you can park Mercedes in them or, you know, uh, other kinds of things, and, and Bree talked about conversions to offices. Is there um, Are there other ways in which this tobacco tradition can keep going? You've got Steve Jarmonk right there, and he's one of the guys that's keeping it going. Yeah. <laughs> he and and he truly is. Um, Connecticut Shade Grown is now not just grown in Connecticut, unfortunately, but Connecticut Shade Grown tobacco grown in the Connecticut River Valley is still the coveted leaf, and I think like some of the home breweries and the distilleries that are now starting to come up. I think there's a quality issue that will keep tobacco sheds in Connecticut, in Massachusetts. Um, so we, um, our, our first book came out in 2009, and the second one came out in 2013. In four years, we have had so many stories and so many people telling us things, like Brianna was saying, is someone would call and say, you know, I'm, believe it or not, I, I kind of can go the, the other direction. We've had people call and say, how do I buy a tobacco shed? And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I want to move it because I want to start holding weddings in it. Ah. Um, something that up here in Vermont is, is kind of common is taking an old barn and redoing it and putting bathrooms in it and have it be an event thing. And I think there's, um, there's a really nice tobacco shed lighting that goes on in Amherst, Massachusetts. And it's just a very nice art event. And it's one way that they're going to keep that tobacco shed going. It's the Steve Jarmonks. It's the people that are still going to keep making that tobacco, even though they're, maybe their profit margin is going down. It's just the love of growing the tobacco. And honestly, I, I anybody that could ever walk into a tobacco shed filled with tobacco that's drying that smells it that's just amazing. Yeah. The smell alone could be, if you could bottle it, that that could keep every tobacco shed upright that exists today. On that sensory note, we're going to have to go. I want to thank Dale. I want to thank Steve, Bree, Connie, Tom. What great guests. Callers, I'm sorry you didn't get on the air. You can email me at colin, C-O-L-I-N, at wnpr.org.
talking about Tobacco Road, yeah. Yeah! Tobacco Road! Yeah, yeah, yeah. My vast tobacco-growing empire is complete, Greg. I'm pleased with the cigars we've got for sale, too. This is an amusement park, Mrs. Wolf. Tch, <laughs> tch. And that was an exploding cigar. 